0: Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Monday, November the 16th. Today on The Briefing, we're gonna take you to the state of Oregon where they've decriminalized the personal use of all drugs.
1: Prohibition of drugs does not work. We are never, ever, ever going to arrest and incarcerate ourselves out of people using substances.
0: That's Oregon, the first US state to take the Portugal approach. Will it ever happen here? That's our briefing topic in just a moment. First, Anarchus Methos is here as we hit the big news of the day.
2: Yes, more than a week after the US election was called for Joe Biden, Donald Trump has come close to admitting that he's lost.
0: Yeah, close but not quite. The president sent out a flurry of tweets early this morning and one of them started with, Biden won because the election was rigged.
2: A short time later, he followed up with, He only won in the eyes of the fake news media. I concede nothing. This was a rigged election. We will win.
0: Yes, yeah, so and most of that was in all caps, by the way. <laughs> um, one White House official has told NBC, this could be the start of Donald Trump's version of conceding. And it certainly seems like he is softening. In a press conference yesterday, he admitted that he may not be the president when the vaccine is rolled out.
3: Ideally, we won't go to a lockdown. I will not go. This administration will not be going to a lockdown. Hopefully, the, the uh, whatever happens in the future, who knows which administration it will be. I guess time will tell. But uh, I can tell you this administration will not go to a lockdown.
0: Bit of a slip of the tongue there, Annika.
2: Yeah, look, I've always thought this will be, you know, the way he will exit because that means that he's always going to be able to say that I should have been there and criticised from the sidelines.
0: So how do you think it will play out? He'll just slowly acknowledge it a bit more in the coming weeks and eventually... He won't have to be physically dragged out of the White House, or he will?
2: (laughs) Look, surely if he keeps challenging it, he's just going to have it reinforced to him that he didn't win. So at some point, I believe, I think he will decide to leave the White House, but he will always maintain it really should have been him.
0: And South Australia has recorded its first case of COVID community transmission in seven months. And it's linked to a person working in hotel quarantine.
2: Officials believe the worker has infected three family members. Four others with symptoms are waiting for their results.
0: Yeah, it's a bit of a worry. One of the women in her 80s has been to a suburban shopping centre and a hospital while infectious. Uh, Another works at a prison. The state's chief health officer, Professor Nicola Spurrier, is worried this could be the start of a cluster.
4: I'm expecting that we will have more cases, uh, which is absolutely why um, I am urging South Australians. This is a wake up call. If you've got respiratory symptoms, you've got to get tested. That prompted an emergency meeting
2: in Western Australia, which decided to immediately shut the door on the state just two days after bringing down that hard border.
0: Yeah, they brought it down pretty quickly. It meant that travellers from South Australia landing in West Australia uh, have already had to go into 14-day self-quarantine, and some of them only found out at Adelaide Airport or after touching down in Perth. Um, Those travellers have had the option, though, to fly back to where they came from.
2: A nation-first vaccine factory to protect Australians during future pandemics, if there is one, will be built in Melbourne.
0: Yeah, today Scott Morrison will announce the project, which is part of a $1.8 billion deal. Construction will begin next year and it will be finished in 2026. So I imagine... Uh, The COVID pandemic will be well and truly over by then, Annika.
2: Fingers crossed. Look, it'll also produce antivenom and become the biggest influenza vaccine factory in the Southern Hemisphere. Right now we get the flu jab from overseas, which leaves us a little vulnerable to shortages.
0: So Annika, this is in partnership with CSL?
2: Yeah, and they're the ones making the actual coronavirus vaccine that's going to be produced in Melbourne. They already have a facility in Parkville, near the University in Melbourne. This one's going to be bigger. It's going to be out near the airport and it means the Commonwealth can purchase all future vaccines from there in the next 12 years.
0: Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see where we're at in five years, like once we're sort of looking back on uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and whether there'll be more of them in the future and whether, I guess, they're going to be able to use this plan to its full capacity.
2: Well, hopefully we all have the hygiene now to wash our hands and not get too close to people to make sure things like the flu actually don't spread as much as they have in the past.
0: All right, Annika, we'll catch you tomorrow on The Briefing. Jan Fran's about to jump in as we take you to Oregon to look at their very novel drug policy.
4: Hello, Jan Fran here. We've heard quite a lot of news come out of America. I think the US election has definitely dominated the headlines there.
0: Yeah, g'day Jan. Yeah, there was another very interesting vote on the ballot paper though in Oregon.
4: There was. The majority of people in the US state of Oregon, they voted for Joe Biden, but they also voted to become the first state in America to decriminalise the personal use of all drugs.
0: Yeah, so if you're caught with a small amount of cocaine, um, meth or heroin, you won't go to jail. You'll get a hundred US dollars fine and a health assessment at an addiction recovery centre.
4: Yeah, it's similar to Portugal's approach, uh, which has been in place for two decades now. It's important to note, though, that this change doesn't mean that it's legal necessarily to possess these drugs. What it means is that it's no longer a criminal offence. It's actually a misdemeanour, so kind of like a parking fine.
0: Yeah, so we're going to find out how Oregon got to this point and where the debate's up to here in Australia.
4: Kate Chatfield is with us. She's been part of the campaign pushing for these reforms. She's the Director of Policy with the Justice Collaborative, uh, that's a nonprofit organisation advocating law reform in America. Kate joins us now on
1: The Briefing. Hi, Kate. Where did this journey to decriminalise drug use begin? Well, I believe that you have to look at the movement to decriminalize marijuana or cannabis first in this country. So that has been an ongoing movement for the last now 30 years. Um, Oregon was one of the first states to do that. Washington, Colorado, uh, California did that as well. This year, four additional states did that uh, through ballot initiative, um, some very, what we would consider here, very conservative states then um, they've either done it by voters or with their legislature. So I think when we look at the drug decriminalization movement in this country, it really has started with marijuana and cannabis. What um, then has happened, the next steps, uh, has been that some states have reduced simple possession of drugs that were felonies um, and that are felonies in many states still and in the federal uh, system. Now in California, uh, a few years ago, they reduced that to a misdemeanor. Our crimes are generally classified as felonies or lower-level misdemeanors. So they've taken that now even a step further in Oregon uh, last week, and they have decriminalized drug possession for. Cocaine, heroin, methamphetamines. So what that means is drug possession was already classified as a um, misdemeanor, a class A misdemeanor in their system. Now it's a class E violation, which is the lowest uh, level of violation, and it's a $100 fine or a completed health assessment if you uh, don't want to do the fine. Mm -hmm. So that's taking it even down to the next level Mm -hmm. of decriminalization.
4: So let's talk about um, this decision in Oregon. Uh, Mm -hmm. why, Why push for the decriminalization of all of these drugs?
1: Well, it's a conversation about really common sense and public health. We have seen in the last 50 years, prohibition of drugs does not work. We are never, ever, ever going to arrest and incarcerate ourselves out of people using substances, whether they, uh, we didn't do it with alcohol in this country 100 years ago and we're not doing it with drugs and whether that's substance use because people have addictions Or whether it's recreational uh, substance use, Um, people are going to use substances. We're just, that's just the way people are. And we're not going to be able to jail our way away from that. And so then there also becomes, well, if this is a problem, what kind of a problem is it? If it's not a criminal problem, well, for some people, many people, it's a health problem. It's an issue of their personal health and of public health, so let's treat it as such.
0: It's a tricky part of the mm-hmm. policy making, isn't it? I imagine that that may have raised some concerns for opponents of these new laws. Um, I guess also like the the concern around the damage drugs can do to people as well would have been reason for for some concern. And even I imagine there there would have been an argument that decriminalising cannabis would lead to this slippery slope, which. For opponents, mm-hmm. that, is, that is what's <laughs> happened. How did you have that debate, and how did you win that argument in Oregon?
1: Well, one thing that we have is that we have years and years of saying that it criminalization doesn't work. I mean, this is a failed policy. It hasn't changed people's drug use or substance use, and it hasn't changed, you know, the black market at all. So, in that way. It's it's failed. And to the extent you say, well, you know, will decriminalization, you know, maybe perhaps the argument is, will it encourage people uh, to use drugs or, you know, the threat of arrest and incarceration has clearly never discouraged people from using substances. So if people actually have a problem with their substance use, what should we do then? Well, let's help them. And that this measure funds treatment centres. It, it requires people to go get a health assessment upon, um, you know, getting um, cited for possessing drugs.
4: Yeah. Talk us a little bit about the state of Oregon in this particular time, because mm. I know that there's been this this push has been going on for a while. Why do you reckon it happened now. Is there something particular about this time and particular about this state that allowed this
1: legislation to go through now? What I do want to point out about Oregon that I find interesting is that Oregon's a a relatively small state. Um, In uh, the United States, it's 4.2 million people. And it is overwhelmingly white. It's 86% white uh, people. Um, and I bring this up because I want to highlight how in this country our war of, on drugs has been a proxy for incarcerating black and brown people. And if it's interesting to me that this occurred in Oregon because if you take away that uh, proxy, that element that it's white people that are being incarcerated and affected. Um, by this war on drugs, then I am questioning and I, and I, I have a strong suspicion that that changes the uh, conversation a lot, that it's, that it's such a heavily white state that it hasn't been able to be a proxy for racism in the way it is in other states.
0: So do you think these laws will end up being introduced in other states?
1: I would not be surprised if uh, similar laws were introduced in California. I would imagine that there would be some conservative states that wouldn't um, move in this direction. I do also want to say that what is happening in large cities and counties in the United States is that drug possession has been effectively decriminalized because the prosecutor, the district attorneys, or the you know the 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 county attorneys, they will not prosecute people uh, for. A simple drug possession. they just, you know, we're, that's a bad use of our resources. Um, we're not going to incarcerate our way out of this. So therefore, we're not going to charge people for drug possession. So in, in that way, it's been effectively decriminalized in many uh, jurisdictions around this country.
0: That's Kate Chatfield in the US.
1: In Australia, however, drug reform
4: advocates have been pushing for sort of similar harm minimization approaches as well. One of the most notable moves in this direction has been in the ACT, where last year they made the limited private use of cannabis legal.
0: Yeah, but that hasn't happened in other states and it hasn't been applied to other drugs.
4: No, in reality, when possession charges get to court, the punishments rarely involve jail time, but you can still end up with a criminal record.
0: Yeah. So the push to Decriminalise All Drugs in Australia continues, and it's actually coming from some pretty surprising people, including this guy.
4: Reverend, yes, Reverend Simon Hansford uh, is the head of the Uniting Church, and it's actually the Uniting Church that's been really one of the key organisations driving the push for decriminalisation in Australia.
0: Reverend Hansford, thanks for joining us. What do you make of Oregon's decision?
3: Well, I, th- I think it's an interesting decision in a in community that, I, that it, it came a bit out of the blue for us here in Australia in, in terms of what we've been following, but it certainly seems to me like a, a decision that's been made with some thought and also with some practical application, which is really good.
0: Do you want the same thing to happen here? Do you think that would be the right thing for Australia?
3: Well, we've been arguing for decriminalisation for some time now, but the challenge for us, of course, when you use um, examples like Oregon or like Portugal, the the temptation is just to cut and paste and say, we did it there, therefore. I think it needs to be explored more fully here because part of the conversation we need to be having is people's understanding about what drug use is like, what uh, people's addiction to drugs is like, dependency is like, and how we actually attend to that in a way that is bringing the whole society along with us rather than just simply making a decision.
4: Yeah. Do you reckon we're ready to have that conversation? here in Australia?
3: Oh, please, please, let's have the conversation. (laughs) And it seems to me that... What we're hearing, and this is what surprised me in this conversation, has been, if I use the word broadly, a whole lot of middle-class mums and dads and grandmas and grandpas who are saying we must have this conversation because it's about our grandkids and our kids. It isn't some lefty kind of group hovering on the edges of things. This is mainstream conversation that needs to be happening because it's mainstream lives that have been affected. It isn't just some illusory group of people on the edge of the community. It's people in the middle of the community. It's about us.
0: Why are you, a reverend, pushing for this?
3: For me, it arises out of the simple understanding of my faith. I mean, when Jesus was asked a question, what's the most important rule? He said, you love God and you love your neighbor as simple as that. And so how we treat people is a reflection of how we understand our place in the world and how we care for people. And loving my neighbor isn't just the neighbors that I like. It's neighbors in difficulty, neighbors in struggle, neighbors who are grieving, neighbors who are caught in addiction or dependency. It's about a whole lot of different kinds of neighbors and how I I care for them. And this is the challenge for us. People are created in the image of God, not just the people that I like, but everybody. So how do I care for them and give them life?
0: So, where is this push up to Are you? Anywhere near moving anywhere close to the direction of Oregon, or is this decades away in Australia?
3: I don't think it's decades away, but I do think it's a critical conversation. I mean, we've got 60 community groups now um, legal, medical, church, community groups allied in this conversation with us who want to say, let's have the real conversation. Because the thing is, what people are confusing is that people think this is just simply about drugs. It's actually about community. It's about domestic violence. It's about poverty. It's about people's families breaking down. It's about crisis in the the social fabric of the community. It's about a health issue. It's about all those things. It isn't just a matter about drugs, yes or no, but it's also critically about how we care for those most at risk in our community.
4: If we decriminalise drugs, is there a chance that we'll actually end up with more people using them, either addicted to them or via recreational use? Is there any risk in that?
3: Well, there's always risk, but there's no evidence at all of that. I mean, you look at the Portugal situation, the drug use has reduced significantly. Now, I'm not just saying Portugal's the same as here, but the evidence from places that have applied this is that people's drug intake actually drops down the number of people who are dependent drops the whole thing shifts and changes and for the politicians who are listening the conversations also about economics this is actually a cheaper way to go this saves money builds resilience builds community and builds employment in the community that was
0: the reverend simon hansford with the beautiful deep reverend like voice he
4: does have a deep reverend like voice doesn't he It'd be interesting to see where this debate goes in Australia.
0: Yeah, it sounds like if you take a science-based approach to this problem, it's inevitable that we'll move in a direction like Portugal and Oregon have. But I feel like it might take 100 years to get there. All right, thank you so much for listening to The Briefing. We will catch you tomorrow. A
4: Podcast One production.